I read the question, you read the answers. Why did Christ have to suffer death? Why was he buried? Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? What does the creed add? He descended to hell. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, prepare our hearts and minds to hear the word. Uh, not, not just the word from your scripture, not just the word uh, from my mouth, but actually prepare our hearts to only hear your words. And may they be acceptable in your sight. In your son's holy name, amen. Romans 6, 5-11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now we're going to focus on that last verse first uh, later on in the sermon. Um, but I know right now there's a couple questions. What does sin have to do with death, which has to do with Easter? Uh, these are really important questions about what all does this matter? So I'm going to break it down real quick. This is Sermon 1, by the way. I told you at the beginning of the service there will be two sermons. Um, this is Sermon 1. First sermon has to do with the question of why is Easter necessary? Why does this have to happen? And I'll give you the answer in short. Uh, Adam and, well, maybe not in short, but hopefully in short. We'll see. We'll see how this all works out. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve uh, was created. Now, no matter what you want to say about uh, the creation narrative, there's a lot of theories about what has happened, what's going on, who created what. Am I, everyone aware of all the different ideas and thoughts that people have about creation? The first three chapters of the Bible. There's one thing I could tell you right now. Anybody that has a, at least a limited experience with the world around them, they are not surprised by one thing. That chapter 3 of Genesis exists. That the fall is a reality. Right? They know that sin exists. 
watch the news, and you just watch, just, just go down, just drive down the street, and you know that sin exists. Now, whether you're comfortable in saying that sin exists in you, that's a different story, but I have to tell you, I hope I don't break the news to you, I hope I don't surprise you, it does exist in you. It exists in each and every one of us. There's not a single one of us that is absolved from the reality. We don't, we don't live just a good life and there's not sin touching you. You, just as much as me, just as much as anybody, have sin. You are a sinner. Is anyone surprised by that? Well, you don't, have to, you don't have to raise your hand. I hope no one is surprised by that. One thing I can tell you, though, is for sure, that that sin is, is, is uh, and I've been preaching about it, I've been saying it, 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 it changes, it, it, it affects you, it, it, it makes it so hard for you to actually even understand who Jesus is. That's what sin does to you. And it, 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 it confuses and it, it changes almost your DNA. And I'm not a biologist, I can't say that for sure. I don't know, uh, I'm not a doctor, but I know that it changes the essence of who you are from time to time. Um, there's a story about a, uh, two guys who are talking over the fence, and one's a, one's a pastor, and the other one is a, a guy who, just this businessman who makes good money. And uh, he, he sits there, and he's talking about how he's going to cheat on his wife, the guy, the businessman. And... Um, and the pastor goes, in, in, in his mind, he starts telling the story about all these different things that he could have done. All, he starts talking about, you know, opening up the Bible and showing them why that's not right, why that's not good. And then he, he tells the story about how, he, in his mind, he thought through, well, what if I told him uh, all the damage he could do to his family and stuff like that? And, and then, then he tells the story about what he actually did. He says, you could do it. You can go ahead and do that. You can go... Have an affair. And you may get away with it. But you'll never be the same person again. You will change from that moment on. It will change who you are. It will be a part of you that you, in that moment, won't be able to look in the mirror. It's just something about it. And we all, we all have those. With the... Let's be honest. Sin is on us. We all have those things that just change just a little bit. That if you were thinking about nothing else except for that one sin that you've committed, and you go and look at a mirror, you wouldn't be happy. You wouldn't, it'd be tough. Right? Am I right? That is a reality. Now, now, uh, I'll say it, because our God created us, and he created us to not experience that sin, meaning, and I've given the analogy plenty of times, it would be like if I used this as a hammer, if I started taking a nail and started hammering that in, this was never created to be a hammer. That's what sin does to you. You take a glass yourself, and you start hammering nails with it. That's what sin is. You take your body and you start doing things, living as if you were never created to live, and you live that way. I've told that analogy, and I know that's what you and that grieves Christ. That makes him sad. And that's not what he wants for you because he sees you knit together in a certain way, knit together to do certain things and to live a certain way and to live a way that he's created. And then he sees you using that completely wrong. That's much, much like a kid, you see, who's not using the toy correctly. But even worse. Right? 
So that's, that's, what's, that's what sin is. And so since God has seen that, he saw his creation rebel from who he, what he wanted from you and what, what he's ex- experienced for you, he has to send it out and, and, and separate himself from it. And God the Father. And that's, that's what we had in the garden. That's chapter 3. And so sin reigned among his people. And sin and death was the result of sin. So now I'll tell you this, one very thing. Anybody who has lost anybody in this world to death, that should be everybody here. We all know people that we've loved dearly. Easter should be the greatest celebration of all. It should be. Not not just about eggs. It's not just about ham or cookies. Boys, it's about cookies, because I ate a bunch today. Desserts. It should be a celebration of the fact that death has no power over his creation. That empty tomb, that empty tomb is proof. The resurrection makes all the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, have power. If the resurrection didn't exist, I don't know what to tell you. I couldn't be standing here today. Because a God who came and just died and went on his way doesn't make nearly as much sense as the one who also beat that death. That is the hope we have with Jesus Christ. And that, if, you've, if you have loved ones, that this day should be a celebration. It should be a hope and a promise. And if you trust Jesus, if you trust him, which I get, my sinful nature, and again, going back to the sinful part, I often want to trust myself more than I want to trust the God who created me. But I want to tell you, if you trust this God today, should be an immense celebration. Not just because our Lord is risen, but because our Lord is, Lord is risen, your loved ones will rise with you. Is that good news? I keep, ask, I keep asking that question at the end of good, good points. But I can't tell you how good our God is. And I want to draw our attention to how good Jesus Christ is. Is that good news? The tomb is empty. Death has no power over you in Jesus Christ. That's the first sermon. Should end there, right? I mean, that's good enough news. We can walk. That's enough morsel to walk away with. But I think that there's something else too, because there's always that next question, which there's uh, Carolyn always asks this question, because it always comes back. And I don't mean to draw your attention to Carolyn. It should be about Jesus. But right now, at this point, Carolyn always asks this question. But why does sin still exist? Why do I still sin? If Jesus Christ beat sin, beat the effects of the fall, why do I still sin? Let me try to. Cast it. I'm going to give you several analogies as to why sin still exists in this world. And, and it's, got, it's not going to be able to maybe give you an example of why a particular sin happened. Why there's like school shootings or why there's like, uh, you know, plane crashes and horrible things like that. This, trust me, it's going to fall short. These analogies will not answer those crazy questions. But what I will try to do, what I will try to say is, is why does God still allow you to commit that one sin that you always commit? If you love Jesus so much, and you know you love him so much, but why do you still commit that one sin? Here, I'll give you an analogy. 
Our God is a God who not leaves us alone. He does not uh, spend his time and distance away from us. He draws so close to us. He comes and comes, draws so intimate with us, so much so that he actually became one of us. He became a human being. Amen. That's good news in and of itself. A God who just doesn't left us adrift like a toy left to be on play. No. He gets involved so much so that he becomes a part of it. And he gets intertwined with it. So I'll give you an analogy. Um, <clears throat> you heard the story, and as a great philosopher, he uses this analogy as to illustrate the point I'm going to try to make, which is uh, you heard the story about Cinderella, a woman who dresses up to ascend to be with the prince, right? Do I have to tell the story? I see no one shaking their head. Is Cinderella that rare of a story now? No, we know it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See? And you hear the, 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 the magnificent story of how the prince falls in love with the fact that she ascended from lowly level to a high level. And that's, that's a, a paradigm, that's a story that we grow up with, and that's a, that's a story that we live into and we really enjoy. We really like that story. But this philosopher tell, told the story in an opposite direction. Our God is so magnificent that he became one of us and looked and was and lived a human life, and became so unassuming as to win our hearts. Now, um, who here has uh, went on a first date with somebody? Only Durr. All right. <laughs> we all have, right? You dress up, you live, you live, you, you try to live a magnificent uh, representation of yourself. If if you, from sometimes, if you out of a scale from one to ten. You live, uh, sometimes you live in the four range, where you're, you maybe, maybe need a shower. You maybe need to put a comb through your hair. And this is a guy thing, so take that for us. And then, at your best, maybe you're an eight, right? And you vacillate between that, depending on where they catch it during the week, where they catch it during the day. Oh, I need to brush my teeth. Okay, that bumps it up to a five. Your first date is what? If you wanted a second date, it would be what? A 10, or you try to make it a 10, right? You tried to turn it up as best as you, the best day you possibly could be, and that's what it was. That's what your first date is, and that's what it should be. Well, that's more the Cinderella story, right? Because the second date, you might, keep, you might attain 10. Third date, maybe 10. Fourth date, now it's time she starts knowing who I am. So now I'll maybe tip less. <laughs> or, okay, maybe I won't get the door for her now. Or you know, this thing is, start, you start kind of settling back into who you are, right? Whether that's a four or whether that's an eight or whatever it may be. Just how you normally live. That's what you settle back into. Am I crazy? Am I right? That's usually by date ten. You are who you are, she is who she is, and you both come together. And that's kind of when the truth kind of comes out. You know, it's the anxiety. Excuse me. That's the anxiety that we get whenever we hear people who have only been dating for a couple months. No, I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm just saying it's, I'm just going off of general human nature. The more time with someone, the more you get to know who they are. Boom, that's just the reality. Now, bringing it back, that's, that's the one analogy, that's the one metaphor that I'm giving you. This, this, uh, this philosopher gives the story of a god, or rather a prince. Instead of like Cinderella where the, 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 the lowly person comes up, 
the prince becomes a peasant, puts on the garb, grows a big beard, just to try to find a woman. Because, because this was his big deal, his big problem, is, is that all these women would come and suit, and he just knew that they were just playing, they were making an act. And he would go, this, this, this prince would go, and he would put the garb on, and he would live and be with these women and try to win their heart from a lowly position and try to, to try to draw them out. And he sees who they are. He says, ooh, I don't like that person. Ooh, I really like that person. Ooh, I don't like that person. Because of seeing exactly who they are, he knows their heart. This is a bit more. Not, now, when you start stretching this analogy to its ends, you might find that it falls. But really what I'm trying to tell you is this. Our God is not the Cinderella where we need to go and, and dress ourselves up and live in front of. Our God is a God who actually is more comfortable with actually bringing himself low, much like the prince, to be with you. When, you, when I ask the question, why does God allow sin to still exist? Because when you dress yourself up and you pretend, sin still exists. You're just hiding it. He wants you to live with him the way you are. And he wants you to love him. Remember these sermons I've talked about, why don't you sin? Why should you sin? You shouldn't sin, not because it's just written in the book and you're supposed to just live this law, but it's who you were created to be is to not sin. You were created to live in a certain way, and what he wants is to draw that out like a poison. He wants to draw out your sin. He doesn't want to zap it from you. Sometimes, some sins he does. Oh, some sins he did. He does, and that's his prerogative. But what I will say is more often than not, the sins is that he slowly draws them out of you. And he slowly changes your heart from where you are. Not from you going and being the Cinderella, but by him coming down and being with you. And that's him. He, you ask me how he you know, he lives in my heart. He lives with you. He lives consistently with you. And he softens your heart. You commit sin on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but Friday you start to regret it. And you wish you wouldn't do it. And it's him start giving you grace changing your heart and making you more and more in his image slowly that's a gentle and it may not feel gentle it may not feel gentle but that is a gentle God our God is gentle let me give you another analogy my Scottish professor Dr. Purvis he gives a, a, an analogy uh, being from Scotland um, what is in Scotland, among many things, is sheep, right? Right? I mean, you know, that they're sheep. Now, uh, unlike uh, uh, shepherds and shepherding uh, villages where there's, there's no fences, in, uh, in, in Scotland there's usually fences. And the sheep would go and they would pretty much find their fence, their security. Do you know this? Do you know that about this? So he'd give this analogy where he says, if you've had sheep long enough in a pen, you could take the gate of that pen right off its hinges. And you just toss the, the, the gate away. They would never come out of that, depending on how big it is. If, if they run out of grass to eat, of course, they're going to keep roaming. And you might find the one roamer that roams his way out but the vast majority of the sheep will never leave that perimeter. 
you know? He says, this is what Christ has done for us. Just an analogy. This isn't just the full, the full analogy. Much like an analogy, you can do three or four of them and they all illustrate the same truth. But they illustrate it from a different angle. Well, I hope they illustrate this from a different angle. Why does sin still exist? Well, here's why, here's why sin still exists. The gate has been lifted on Easter. The, the resurrection proves. The gate, he tosses the gate. The gate is aside. There's no separation from you and heaven. There's no, it's not as if you have to even walk through that gate. That gate that has separated us from the Father now no longer exists. You are now united to the Father, but you know what you like to do? You like the comfort of your own parameters. You like the comfort of your own gates. Your sin actually gives you comfort. Did you know that? It's hard to imagine. Sometimes our sin actually comforts us more than our Lord does. And that's this analogy. Sometimes we like returning to our own cud. We, we like re- returning to our own, to the back, the vomit. Sorry for the gruesomeness of it. But we do. Because we know it. And we're used to it. And it sometimes is used to comfort us. We actually like to gossip because it makes us feel a little better about ourselves. We like to be anxious because by being anxious, we feel like we have control. And on and on and on with sin. So why does sin still exist? It doesn't. Often it doesn't. That's why they have to shoot the the sheep in. The great shepherd, the sheepdog, in that way. And now I've seen it once. Oh, it's amazing. Because the dog, I mean, I'm a dog lover, so it's just an amazing thing. And I'm off task at this point because we're talking about a dog. But it's amazing. The dog will go and he'll hide or, or like, walk real low. And, and the sheep are, like, they know something's up. And they'll, they'll shoot him. He'll shoot around once, the, once he hears the, you know, whatever it is. And then the dog will shoot around the back of the sheep, make himself known, and the sheep are like, God, <laughs> they hurry up and start running. And, uh, and then the, the sheepdog kind of goes, ah, oh. it, it was amazing. And this guy wasn't like showing off. This was his livelihood. This was everyday living for him. It was such a perfect illustration for me to see what does our God do? Much like, now, Jesus is not a sheepdog. Please hear me on this. This is where analogies break down, trust me, but he's much like that. Where he goes around and he, he's calling us and he's moving us away from our securities. These sinful securities that we build up in our lives. He's moving us away from that. And he's bringing us up. And he's doing it in an unassuming way. And sometimes he does it in a very bold way. That is what our God does. Why does sin still exist? I'll tell you another reason why. And this is what's important to me. He's showing me how good of a friend, how good of a person, how good and reliable he is. I went, I was a probation officer when I was 22 years old. I wasn't making great money. But for someone 22, I was making good money. And I felt the call to ministry. 
And I went from making good money to making seven dollars a month. And I was anxious and I was nervous. And I didn't trust. I had a tough time trusting him on this. But I'll tell you right now, 13, 14 years removed, about 13 years removed, I know for a fact I'll never make a decision about my life. This sounds crazy, according to how much I'll make. Not because I'm some holy person, but because he put me and allowed me to be in the midst of anxiety, he says, you can trust me, I'm, I'm your friend, and I will not let you go. I got random checks in the mail of people I never met before. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Story after story after story. God delivering to me precisely what I prayed for the night before on the neck of my dog. That's a story for another time. I can't tell you how much he drew me just a little bit farther towards the gate of that pen in trusting him and not trusting me. You have stories like this. I know you do. Believe you. If you don't, then you need to stick yourself out there a little bit more. You need to allow that sheep to move you, a shepherd dog, to move you along a little bit farther. Because I can tell you that I didn't know how bills were going to be paid, and yet they were paid. I don't know. That is our God. Our God not willing to just let us drop $50,000 in your lap without really necessarily connecting to the fact that that's always been given to you by God. No. Sometimes he will actually let you worry be anxious and trust so that he build, you build that trust in him. I'm not saying that's always the case, but I'm saying that was the case for me. So, can you turn to verse 11 real quick? I've centered around why the sin, why, what, what are we supposed to do with sin? And I'm going to leave you with one last thing. What's the importance of recognizing that you are sinless in Christ? So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now we know from the creed, you are still going to die. Unless he returns, you are still going to die. What does that mean? What is all that, how does all that make sense for us? Well, I, I don't know. But what I can tell you is this. That sometimes he will actually go and he will bring you forward he, in that pen. He will draw you closer to the gate of that pen. But another dynamic, too, is this. We need to realize how sin is affecting our lives. We need to recognize that not, not just because you are sinless in the Lord does that give you the right to be like, oh, well, then I'm sinless. Oh, that's a blank check. And I've got this really cool dichotomy that almost sounds like a contradiction. Here it is. I'm going to try to I'm gonna try, I memorize it. I tried to memorize it. I don't think I did it well. There was this uh, uh, New Testament scholar who put it. He said this. If you are comfortable with the fact that you are actually dead to sin, maybe you are understanding the power that sin has in your life. If you begin to not believe that you are dead to sin, maybe 
You don't trust the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ enough. That sounds like a contradiction. I like to leave it as a tension. How we are called to live our life is to realize that you are forgiven of your sin. As far as the east is from the west and that is an infinite amount of distance, so are your sins from you. But that doesn't necessarily mean you don't work through them. You do not try to uh, say, oh, I could be in these gates. That doesn't matter. Because you know what? You have a God who loves you. He is present and he is real. And he wants you to live as he created you. He wants you to live as you are knit. As you are knitted together in your mother's womb. That is how he's called you. And so recognizing on one hand that you are completely sinless. And on the other hand, you are completely fallen. Completely sinful. Don't be surprised by your turn of the path. But in the same sense, in Jesus Christ, you have no sin on you. I leave you with attention. And that is where it's at. But I also will point you to the fact that the tomb is empty. And that is our final hope and our final cup. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon me, mercy upon everyone here.